Hi, this is Professor Jim Paisley. Are you tired of the five-minute news clips presented every night by the talking heads on the national news? Would you like to know what is really going on? I have taught American and European history for the past 27 years. I find it fascinating how history truly does repeat itself. When we watch the evening news, no one seems to know anything about how current events are all tied to the past. Critical race theory, crime in our cities, federal versus state powers, the Arab-Israeli conflict? How about international relations with Russia, China, and Europe? On my shows, I give a historical perspective to what is currently happening in our world. Join me weekly to find the true history behind what is happening today. Folks, well, I have an interesting topic for today. I was recently asked to do a talk on Veterans Day, and they asked specifically if I could talk a little bit about Missouri's history with the military and some of the forts that were built here throughout our history. And so I'm going to share that with you today. Now, I found a great article by a gal by the name of Kathy Weiser, W-E-I-S-E-R, on a website called Legends of America. And in that, I found some fascinating information about some of the early forts here in the state of Missouri. Let's start with Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Now, the fort there was sitting on the first high ground in Missouri upstream of the Ohio River, and it was seen as an important site during the Civil War for numerous strategic reasons. In 1861, General Ulysses S. Grant approved the construction of four forts at strategic locations around the city of Cape Girardeau. They were named, interestingly enough, Forts A, B, C, and D. Ah, the federal government, always so innovative. Now, Forts A, B, and C no longer exist. However, I did find some information on Fort D. Now, Fort D was located on a river bluff south of the city, and like Fort A, it was primarily a river defense. It was the largest and most important garrison in the region, and is the only fort remaining in Cape Girardeau today. The post was constructed by Union troops at the same time as other Cape Girardeau forts in 1861. Like the other forts, Fort D was designed by Captain Franz Kapper, and Henry Flod of the Army Engineers. Construction began on August the 6th, 1861, under the direction of Lieutenant John W. Powell from Illinois. Now, the design is in a French bastion form, basically a triangle with an open base. The earthworks faced away from the river. Reportedly, Fort D housed both 24- and 32-pound cannons, which would easily control any upriver movement on the Mississippi River. Now, the soldiers who served at the fort reported another interesting fact. They said that they had what they called Quaker cannons. Now, Quaker cannons were simply logs that were painted black to look like cannons, 
and they were used to enhance the appearance of the armament. In order to keep warm during the winters, soldiers dug artificial caves in the hillside below the fort. Fort D did not see action during the Civil War, and probably never fired its guns in anger, serving mostly as a symbolic deterrent. Now, in 1936, the site was purchased by the American Legion Post, and the earthworks were restored to their original height with some modifications. A stone building constructed in the middle of the fort at the site of the original powder house was dedicated to the city, and today it is part of the Cape Girardeau Parks and Recreation Department. Now, for my St. Louis folks in the audience, let's turn to Fort Bell Fountain, Missouri. Now, Fort Bell Fountain was the first United States military installation in the Louisiana Territory. This frontier military post was located on the south bank of the Missouri River, where it comes together with the Mississippi River. Now, after the Louisiana Purchase, a treaty was made between the United States and the Sac and Fox Indian tribes in November of 1804 which allowed the building of a fur trading post owned by the United States government. The fort took its name from a nearby spring named Belle Fountain, which means beautiful fountain in French. The trading post served as a starting point for many expeditions to the American West. The site of the fort was Lewis and Clark's first campsite after they left Camp River Dubois in 1804, and the site of the fort where they spent their last night on their return trip in 1806. The use of the fort as a trading post was discontinued after 1808, and from 1809 to 1826 it served as a military fort. More buildings were erected by three companies of the 1st Infantry under the supervision of Lieutenant Colonel Jacob Kingsbury. The original fort was located on the floodplain below the bluff, but was abandoned in 1810 when the river shifted to the south. Today, the original fort site would be located in the middle of the river. A second fort was built on the flat ground atop the bluff. And from about 1809 to 1815, the fort served as the headquarters of the Department of Louisiana and was the regional army headquarters during the War of 1812. Its sister forts were Fort Osage, along the Missouri River near present-day Kansas City, which controlled trade with western Indians, and Fort Madison in Iowa, which controlled trade in the upper Mississippi River. Now, by 1925, the post was beginning to deteriorate, and due to the changing military needs of the region, the War Department decided to abandon the location. In 1826, the soldiers were relocated to Jefferson Barracks, the new military post south of St. Louis. However, a small contingent of soldiers were left at the fort to protect the arsenal facility and supply munitions for Jefferson Barracks until the St. Louis arsenal was completed in 1828. Afterward, Fort Bell Fountain was permanently abandoned. The site was purchased by St. Louis County in 1986 and is now known as Fort Bellefountain Park. Not far from the site of Fort Bellefountain stood another fort, Fort Capogri, 
C-A-P-A-U-G-R-I-S. Now, Fort Capagree, also called Fort Independence and Capo Gray, was a temporary post built in the summer of 1813 near Troy, Missouri, during the War of 1812. It was erected by Missouri Rangers upon the advisement of the inhabitants of Fort Howard to observe the Indian movements on the Mississippi River. Built under the direction of Nathan Boone, son of Daniel Boone, the fort was located about 18 miles east of Troy, Missouri. After the defeat of Fort Johnson, U.S. Army soldiers, under the command of none other than Zachary Taylor, retreated to Capagree in October of 1814. The Battle of the Sinkhole was fought near the fort on May 24, 1815, after the official end of the War of 1812, between Missouri Rangers and the Sac Indians, led by Black Hawk. Now, the Sac were unaware or did not care that their British patrons had signed the Treaty of Ghent with the U.S. The battle was fought in a low spot near the mouth of the Quiver River, near present-day Old Monroe, near Fort Howard and Fort Capagree. An ambush by the Sac Indians on a group of rangers led to a prolonged siege in which seven rangers and one Sac were killed. In 1824, the Sac and the Fox finally gave up all claims to the region. A small village called Capagree grew up around the old fort and was officially laid out in 1845. It soon boasted two stores, a school, and a population of about 60 people. The town was incorporated in 1876 under the name of the inhabitants of the town of Wyota. However, the people never became accustomed to the new name and continued to use the old name. It became an early day shipping point for Troy and became a town of some importance, boasting a number of businesses. However, when the railroads arrived, they took away the village's trade and by 1888 the town was basically gone. Another name quite familiar to our St. Louis audience is Carondelet. And yes, folks, there was a Fort Carondelet. It was built around 1787 by French trader Pierre Choteau as a trading post on the high ground known as Haley's Bluff on the south bank of the Osage River in Vernon County. Later, the post became known as Fort Carondelet. It was named for Baron de Carondelet, the Spanish governor of Louisiana. Though no accurate description of the fort has been found, it probably was the customary log trading building, or a blockhouse, and a couple of cabins, surrounded by palisades, and garrisoned by a dozen or more of the employees of the fur trade company. Years after it was abandoned by the fur traders, early settlers found the remains of a stone wall, which is believed to have been part of the ruins of the old fort. Today, there's nothing left of the old post. Now, this brings us to Fort Charette, C-H-A-R-E-T-T-E. Now, Fort Charette, Missouri, was established by French fur trader Joseph Chadron in 1790. This trading post, near present-day Washington, Missouri, was noted by Lewis and Clark, of all people, during their Corps of Discovery exploration of the Missouri River. 
Now, stopping at the small outpost, they wrote in their diaries that it was the last white settlement they encountered. A village called La Charette grew up around the trading post and was one of the earliest melting pot communities in the West, including Native Americans, African Americans, French, Spanish, and German immigrants. In addition to Lewis and Clark, several other notable historic characters also passed through here, including Daniel Boone, Zebulon Montgomery Pike, John Coulter, and a number of others who helped to shape the history of the West. Unfortunately, the fort and the village were later washed away by the Missouri River in the floods of 1842. However, after several artifacts and remains of the old trading post were discovered in a farm field, the old post was painstakingly relocated and rebuilt in Washington, Missouri. Today, the restored trading post, which is divided into a trading room, blacksmith shop, and frontier living quarters, houses an impressive collection of artifacts and period furnishings. Now let's jump forward to a Civil War fortification, Fort Davidson, down around Pilot's Knob, Missouri. Now, Fort Davidson was built by Union forces about 300 yards from the base of Pilot Knob Mountain. The hexagonal earthwork fortress was the target of the Civil War Battle of Pilot Knob in 1864 during General Sterling Price's expedition through Missouri. In September 1864, Major General Sterling Price led his troops into Missouri with the goal of capturing St. Louis. Leading some 12,000 troops, from Camden, Arkansas, Price began his Missouri expedition, moving north towards Ironton, near the terminus of the Iron Mountain Railroad from St. Louis. Now, what happened here is that as he was heading north, up in the area of Cape Girardeau, with the intention of capturing St. Louis, he came upon two Union scouts high on the hill above him. Those two Union scouts looked down and saw this massive Confederate army. Bear in mind, folks, this is during one of the last years of the Civil War. Well, Sterling Price looked at the two scouts and thought, well, the jig is up. They've caught on to what we're doing, and they'll go back and report where we are. So there's no way that we'll be able to take St. Louis. The surprise of our whole attack has been blown. And with that, he decided to turn his troops and head towards Pilot Knob. Little known fact is those two scouts were two guys that were AWOL from St. Louis, went down to see their girlfriends for the weekend in Cape Girardeau. As it turns out, they didn't want their officers to know that they had gone AWOL, so they never reported seeing Sterling Price and his troops. So two guys that are off to see their girlfriends may have very well changed the course of the war. So back to our story. Here we are with Sterling Price giving up on St. Louis, and now he turns towards Pilot Knob. Now, Fort Davidson was a tempting target, and the main reason why is the commander there was none other than Union General, Brigadier General, Thomas Ewing. Now, Thomas Ewing is notorious for having commanded troops around Kansas City and forcing the evacuation of all citizens 
in Vernon, Cass, Bates, and Jackson counties. Didn't matter if you were Union or Confederate, everybody was given 14 days to get out, and then they came in and burned all four counties to the ground. So the Union had themselves a real villain here, and the Confederates would like nothing more than to capture this guy. So Sterling Price and his 12,000 men headed to Fort Davidson with the sole purpose of trying to get Thomas Ewing. Now, what happened was, is that even though Thomas Ewing was outnumbered 10 to 1, what he quickly found was that his fort was his greatest asset. The fort had been built in the shape of a hexagon, and they dug a moat around it and piled the dirt to the outside. So as you approach the fort, you had to go up over the berm and slid down into this muddy ditch, and there it was open season on any attackers. Hi folks. How would you like seven steps to improve your critical thinking? Now critical thinking, we've heard so much about that. That's what you know the our educators are supposed to be providing to our students. But has anybody ever really explained what critical thinking is? It's interesting to listen to a quote that Ralph Waldo Emerson had. He says, what's the hardest task in the world? To think. Thinking is the hardest work there is, which is the probable reason why so few engage in it, is what Henry Ford said. Now, every day I'm amazed at the amount of information I consume. I listen to the news in the morning, check my social media accounts throughout the day, and watch some TV before I go to bed, all while getting constant updates via email and social media. It can be overwhelming. But things get really interesting when some of that information is biased, inaccurate, or just plain made up. It makes it hard to know what to believe. Even with all the competing sources and opinions out there, getting the truth, or at least close to it, matters. What you believe affects what you buy, what you do, who you vote for, and even how you feel. In other words, it virtually dictates how you live your life. So, how can you figure out what is true and what is not? Well, one way is by learning to think more critically. Now, critical thinking is as simple as it sounds. It's just a way of thinking that helps you get a little closer to the best answer. Critical thinking is just deliberately and systematically processing information so that you can make better decisions and generally understand things better. So the next time you have a problem to solve, a decision to make, or information to evaluate, here are methods you can use to help you find the truth. Number one, don't take anything at face value. The first step to thinking critically is to learn to evaluate what you hear, what you read, and what you decide to do. So rather than doing something because it's what you've always done or accepted what you've heard as the truth, spend some time just thinking. What's the problem? What are the possible solutions? What are the pros and cons of each? If you really evaluate things, you're likely to make a better, more reasoned choice. As the saying goes, when you assume, you make an ass out of you and me. It's quite easy to make an ass of yourself simply by failing to question your basic assumptions. Some of the greatest innovators in human history were those who simply looked up for a moment and wondered if one of everyone's general assumptions was wrong. 
From Newton to Einstein, questioning assumptions is where innovation begins. If everyone is thinking alike, then somebody isn't thinking, according to George S. Patton. Number two, consider motive. Where information is coming from is a key part of thinking critically about it. Everyone has a motive and a bias. Sometimes it's pretty obvious. Other times it's a lot harder to detect. Just know that where any information comes from should affect how you evaluate it and whether you decide to act on it. Number three, do your research. All the information that gets thrown at us on a daily basis can be overwhelming. But if you decide to take the matters into your own hands, it can also be a very powerful tool. If you have a problem to solve, a decision to make, or a perspective to evaluate, get on Google and start reading about it. The more information you have, the better prepared you'll be to think things through and come up with a reasonable answer to your query. I have a personal library of over 3,500 books, and I use them all the time for research. You have access to your local library and an unlimited amount of good information on the Internet. Don't rely solely on Google. The Library of Congress alone is a great source of information. Another great search engine that I use a lot is called RefSeek, R-E-F-S-E-E-K. It contains over a billion books, documents, journals, and newspapers. When you're trying to solve a problem, it's always helpful to look at other work that has been done in the same area. It's important, however, to evaluate this information critically, or else you can easily reach the wrong conclusion. Ask the following questions of any evidence you encounter. How is it gathered, by whom, and why? Our fourth step, ask questions. I sometimes find myself shying away from questions. They can make me feel a little stupid. But mostly, I can't help myself. I just need to know. And once you go down that rabbit hole, you not only learn more, but often discover whole new ways of thinking about things. I tell people all the time, there are no stupid questions. That is how you learn. Sometimes an explanation becomes so complex that the basic original questions get lost. To avoid this, continually go back to the basic questions you asked when you set out to solve the problem. What do you already know? How do you know that? What are you trying to prove, disprove, demonstrate, critique, and so on? The fifth step, don't always assume you're right. I know that's hard. I struggle with a hard-headed desire to be right as much as the next person, because being right feels great. However, assuming you're right will often put you on the wrong track when it comes to thinking critically. Because if you don't take in other perspectives and points of view and think them over and compare them to your own, you really aren't doing much thinking at all, and certainly not the critical kind. Human thought is amazing, but the speed and automation with which it happens, can be a disadvantage when we're trying to think critically. Our brains naturally use mental shortcuts to explain what's happening around us. This was beneficial to humans when we were hunting large game and fighting off wild animals. But it can be disastrous when we try to decide who to vote for. A critical thinker is aware of their biases and personal prejudices and, they influ and the influence that they have on objective decisions and solutions. All of us have biases in our thinking. It's awareness of them 
that makes thought critical. Number six, break it down. Being able to see the picture is often touted as a great quality, but I'd wager that being able to see that picture for all its components is even better. After all, most problems are too big to solve all at once, but they can be broken down into smaller pieces. The smaller the parts, the easier it'll be to evaluate them individually and arrive at a solution. This is essentially what scientists do. Before they can figure out how a bigger system, such as our bodies or an ecosystem, works, they have to understand all the parts of that system, how they work, and how they relate to each other. I think this is a primary reason why so many people have been successful in solving major problems. They seem to have the capability to take complex issues and break them down into something we and our, our rest of our fellow man can understand. That is part of critical thinking. Seven, the final step, keep it simple. I'll say it again, keep it simple. In the scientific community, a line of reasoning called Occam's Razor, O-C-C-A-M-S, Occam's Razor is often used to decide which hypothesis is most likely to be true. This means finding the simplest explanation that fits all facts. This is what you would call the most obvious explanation, at least until it's proven wrong. Often, Occam's Razor is just plain common sense. When you do your research and finally lay out what you believe to be the facts, you'll probably be amazed by what you uncover. It might not be what you were expecting, but chances are it'll be closer to the truth. Some of the most amazing solutions to problems are astounding not because of their complexity, but because of their elegant simplicity. Look for the simple solution first. So in conclusion, critical thinking is not an easy topic to understand or explain, but the benefits of learning it and incorporating it into your life are huge. So remember these seven simple steps. One, don't take anything at face value. Two, consider the motive. Three, do your research. Four, ask questions. Five, don't always assume you're right. Six, break it down. And seven, keep it simple. I'll close with one quote. Anyone who stops learning is old, whether 20 or 80. Anyone who keeps learning stays young. Again, another great quote by none other than Henry Ford. What do you think, folks? Can you adopt critical thinking in your life? Better yet, can you pass it on to those who refuse to use it? Well, folks, that's all the time we have for this segment. Thanks for listening to True History with Professor Jim Paisley. See you next time.